You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Adina Hefetz, who is the co-founder and CEO of Divi Homes, a prop tech company on a mission to make home ownership accessible to everyone. Today, Adina is one of the few female founders to reach double unicorn status and to be valued at approximately $2 billion. Adina set out to solve a problem she saw in the market. Fewer people can afford to purchase a home today than two decades ago. To solve this, she came up with a new way to finance home purchases through a rent-to-own model that allows renters to gradually build up ownership in their future homes. Prior to founding Divi, Adina joined Square in 2013 and was responsible for building out Square Capital, a merchant cash advance platform with billions in loans outstanding. Prior to joining Square, she was part of the large cap buyout team at DPG, a private equity firm where she helped purchase companies in the real estate sector. She started her career as an investment banker at Merrill Lynch. Adina holds a bachelor's from Cornell and an MBA from Stanford. She was named 40 under 40 by Fortune and backed by A16Z, Tiger Capital, and Caffeinated Capital. She currently lives in Oakland, California. I think they've raised over a billion dollars. LinkedIn has about 290 employees listed. We discuss profitability first growth trade-off, the co-founder relationships, the role of a CEO, getting and learning from mentors, along with a lot more. So I hope you will stay tuned. Anna, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. To, yeah, I'd love to dive right in by asking you, uh, why is housing so expensive? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. So I'd say that if we were trying to understand why home prices are what they are today, you kind of have to go back to pre-global financial crisis. And so pre the GFC, from about 2000 to 2008, we were probably building about one and a half million homes annually. And during that time, we had about four to five months of inventory or months of supply. And what that means is that if there are no additional homes listed for sale, how long all the homes would get taken up, sort of. Um, so, so basically a measure of how much inventory there is in the market. And four months to five months is generally considered a pretty healthy, balanced market. The global financial crisis then then hit, and during that time, there was a mass increase in the number of foreclosures. And so when the, the market got flooded by these foreclosures, new home builders were like, okay, well, you can now buy a house for $150,000, and I can only build a new home for probably about $200,000, $250,000, and I need to make a profit on top of that. So there's no point in me building a ton of homes because people can just buy existing inventory for cheaper. And so you saw new home builders going from building about 1.5 million homes annually down to about 750,000 homes annually. So they stopped building essentially. And that lasted until about 2015 but when we started actually building homes again, um, but we're still below pre-recession levels. So we're building about 1.2 million homes a year. And so kind of we went from four to five months of inventory pre-GFC to then probably 11 to 12 months of inventory when the market got flooded with foreclosures. And then kind of started to recover back to four to five months of, of inventory as, as we started to, to rebuild again. And some of that foreclosure inventory got absorbed while 
no one was projecting that that COVID was going to happen, right? And there was going to be this mass spike in demand. So we had basically for the prior decade had been underbuilding in terms of, of new home builds. And so supply is extremely low. And then COVID hits and everyone wants to be in a single family home, right? They want to move out of their studio. They want a backyard. They want more space. And so the amount of demand has really just skyrocketed. And so when demand increases and supply has remained low, the result is a rise in home prices. So today we have, you know, roughly around three months of inventory across the U.S., uh, which is pretty low. And then in specific markets, we're actually seeing things as low as only half a month of inventory. Well, I didn't realize it was that low. Does that mean we overbuilt for a while before the financial crisis? I don't think that we overbuilt before the financial crisis. I think we we built a healthy amount. It just means that once the financial crisis happened, we underbuilt because there was a lot of foreclosure homes and inventory on the market. So we need to build more. Yes, that uh, that is the situation, except as you know, during COVID, and everyone I think is fairly aware of this, that we've won, had some labor shortages because immigration has kind of paused and a lot of folks who who help with that part of our economy tend to be immigrants. Um, so we don't have labor to actually build the homes. And then supply chain issues have caused a decrease in the amount of supply we can actually take in. So right now we're like, okay, let's build more and let's build faster. It's like, well, we have no one to build. We don't have the supplies we need, which is just exacerbating the situation. The prices have gone up and Divi Homes helped those that wouldn't otherwise be able to buy a home get into one sooner. That's correct, yeah. And where is the value created from a financial perspective? I broadly think of it as rent to own, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but is, is the value in sort of this forced savings or is it locking in the price now before more appreciation? How do you think about it? Well, I'd say first and foremost, it's access, access to a good. Um, and so what Divi lets you do is get the house you want today. Um, and so I think that we've seen this trend, which is I want access or use of something, even if I can't fully afford it. I mean, a firm has made an entire business off of this, which is I want a Peloton. I cannot afford to fully pay the Peloton right now. I'm going to finance the purchase of it, right? So I say first thing is access to goods that you want, even if you cannot fully afford to pay for that entire good up front. So that's kind of the first value proposition. Two. The house, yes, you get to, to save in the property. And so there's building up of equity and wealth and savings over time. And three, yes, you get to lock in a price. So I'd say all three of those things make our product really appealing for customers, which is they get in the house they want today, they're saving up slowly over time, and then they have the option to actually buy it in the future. Now you're giving up any share in the price appreciation. You're acting as a landlord, but if you end up with a higher price for the property at the end, you're not taking advantage of that. Yeah, we, we definitely share in the upside with the tenant. That's, that's the whole goal of this. But I think the trade we make and why that's acceptable to us as a business is we end up getting tenants who think, act, and feel like homeowners. So we, the, the, the trade that we're making, everyone says, what's the catch? Well, the catch is we give you upside in the property. You share in the appreciation with us. You get your home today. And you turn over at a lower rate, you take better care of the home. There's a saying, no one, no one takes rental cars, a car wash. Well, our customers don't think of a house like a rental, so they end up treating it a lot better than they would a traditional rental property, which means overall our costs are less. And so 
we give them some of the upside. They take away some of our costs because they tend to choose the home better um, and care for it and turn over at a lower rate, which allows us to be able to offer that benefit back to the And do you think you'll ever offer this for more than a single family home product? Well, I never say never. Uh, I really like the single family home asset class because I think that you can really understand the industry and supply and demand and, and how those play out over time. I think that, you know, folks say that building a company is is part grit and part part luck. We've worked really hard to build Divi over the last four to five years. And the luck has been that, you know, we were fortunate that we started in single family homes and that we didn't go into multifamily because multifamily has been was originally hit pretty hard during COVID where we saw uh, rents start to decrease, which is not something we've ever seen in single family homes. And so the asset classes all act differently. There's also a lot of restrictions around multifamily, which is HOA restrictions, condo communities, things like that. And so it's just a different ball game. So I think right now our goal is staying single family, but that's not to say that we never wouldn't, we would never expand outside of that. And how do you think about growth? Like how much is the right amount? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. So I think that there are two sides to that equation, one being growth and the other one being driving profitability. And they usually work uh, inversely to each other, which is the more you invest in growth, the more you burn through capital and, and the more cash you generally tend to need to raise. Divi is a little bit different than other startups. And I say that because if you look at traditional SaaS company, right, their way of growing is by adding headcount, essentially, right? You make a product, to get people to sell it. And so if they want to grow, they invest in headcount. That increases their burn, right? But that gets paid back over time with recurring revenue. Now, at Divi, it's a little bit different. And I'd say that because our main cost, you know, yes, there's there's headcount, but our bigger thing is our interest expense or cost of capital for debt that we take out to finance the purchase of homes. And so for us, we can grow really fast. And the condition more around profitability is more driven by how we, we structure our, our capital side. So whether or not we're keeping assets on balance sheet, whether or not we're selling off balance sheet assets, and then how we structure our interest expense less so than just headcount. And so I think our goal at Divi is always grow at a healthy amount while maintaining really strong unit profitability. The macro environment today, I think, you know, there's those two conditions. It's growth and profitability. And I think it used to be growth was so far ahead of profitability. And I'd say profitability is now a, a closer second, still a second, but but very close. And so I think David Sachs put out this like tweet that was like, you know, companies that have high growth and moderate burn will be able to raise in the next couple of you know months in, in, in this current environment, but uh, companies that have moderate growth and high burn will not. Um, and I think that that's a lot of how, how I think about that at Divi. Are there other trade-offs to growth besides profitability? For sure. Uh, we have a pretty asset-intensive business, so the faster you grow, you know, there, there takes building out foundational customer journey experiences. Um, and so faster you grow, the less you're investing sometimes in, in core infrastructure. Um, and then you have to kind of make sure that you're just thinking about that. So I'd say one is a lot of times when you're growing really fast, you're trading off customer experience at times or building up the right infrastructure. But again, you're offering your product to more people. So it's, it's a trade there. And then I think generally profitability is the other one that I, I usually think about. Did you see other things when you were building uh, your company? Yeah, we started my first company, Fintech, in 2000, March, which is the peak, peak of the NASDAQ. And 
we had a very challenging fundraising environment, had to be very scrappy from the beginning and uh, drive to cash flow positive uh, as quickly as, as we could. And we also raised a lot of money from individuals and angels because many VCs were not investing. Mm. Uh, I think that, you know, there's trade-offs to growth, certainly on how fast your team can absorb new people and keep your same culture, how much your internal systems can handle. We served the higher education market and saw extreme seasonality. So, mm. you know, bringing in a lot of people to help out for the back to school season was a real strain on people, processes, and technology systems, no matter how much we would warn people and always surprise some of our technology vendors every year, we'd find okay. some new bottleneck. So there, there are a number of different trade-offs, but I think you've highlighted the most important one. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting because I think that you're constantly focused on, on growth as a founder, right? Because you're you're not going to be able to raise your next round or you're not going to be able to even recruit talented individuals to help you build your company if you're not showing that you have product market fit. But I think you kind of have two jobs as a CEO, which is like, well, if you have a lot more than two jobs, but I'd say the first two jobs are one, don't run out of cash, right? Is kind of core principle number one. And then two, make sure you find product market fit, make sure that you're growing, right? And then you obviously hiring a team, setting a culture, doing a million other things, but those are kind of the two that I'm always sort of top of my mind. One of my favorite books is uh, the Seven Powers book. And I'm forgetting the author's name right now, but he talks about product market fit and discovering that in a startup is the first invention. And then oh. the second is figuring out how to have power, how to have a competitive moat. How do you think about that in the case of you? Yeah, it's interesting because we're definitely in a, a different type of market being in sort of the the single family home space. And I guess I say that because, you know, the largest player in the single family rental space is Invitation Homes, and they have about 80,000 homes. There's 126 million households in the U.S. So the point of that is just to say it is not a winner-take-all market. Um, you actually don't need much to actually get to extreme scale. Invitation Homes is a $20 billion, maybe even now $25 billion enterprise value company. And so, you know, in some network or, or marketplace businesses actually building out a competitive advantage and making sure that you're the, the sole player and that you have volume and eyeballs and all that stuff is is the is really important, right? To have that mode. I'd say in our business, maybe not as much. Although I definitely, you know, it helps. And I definitely think that like kind of step one is like, I agree, product market fit is does anybody want your product? So we we were founded, it was in the end of 2017 when we had our, our first customer and her name was Teresa Peterson and she kind of helped us build the business. But, you know, the first year I was like, okay, let's see if we can get to even a hundred homes closed, right? And then we got to a hundred and then I'm like, okay, time to get to a thousand homes closed, right? And you keep setting that goal post and eventually it becomes, I think, pretty obvious if people love your product, right? You have thousands of people who are constantly applying, you have feedback mechanisms, you have customers emailing you, telling you that they need your product. And so I definitely have found that number one product market fit. And then I think defensibility is really important, but I would just say, I think that, and I can go through how we think about building a really defensible mode, but I do think that in, in some industries, it's more important than others. And I would say within the industry that Divi's in, it's important, but I wouldn't say as important as a network effects business, right? And so when I think about defensibility, 
right? It's really go to market and finding an advantage either in our brand and reputation or in how we can distribute our product. And so, you know, early on, we, we had found that customers would come to Divi and they'd apply and they'd bring with them their realtor. And their realtor would go through the Divi experience and be like, wow, I just took a customer who previously couldn't even get a mortgage and I just made them an all cash bidder and, and finance them with Divi. This is amazing. I'm now going to send, and we used to have them, I think for every one home closing, we'd send on average 63 new leads to Divi, that, that realtor, right? And that was really important to us because it gave us a channel advantage, which is if we can onboard an, a realtor, uh, we can get them to actually go through the process with us, give them a really good experience that they would then follow up and start sending um, a tremendous amount more customers. And that created a stickiness over time. So I think that the point of the book, kind of going back to the original question is, do people want your product? And then can you help scale it and create defensibility to it? And I think that for Divi, you know, we very early on wanted to make sure of one, when you're creating a new category, that there was product market fit. And I think that was the most important factor for us. And defensibility and scalability, I think more comes with our go-to-market strategy and how we continue to onboard customers, but maybe not as life or death as it is for, for marketplace or network businesses. Wow, I'm blown away by that 63 number that you could have one customer who results in getting 63 new leads. Wow. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You also mentioned by name your first customer, which I think is, is wonderful and brings us back to the beginning. I'd love to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about that founding story and journey. One thing that comes to mind is I, I can't imagine as a first-time founder thinking, oh, I'm going to have to have capital buy you know, multiple houses before I can even prove that this works. <laughs> um, how did you think about the capital strategy? It sounds very complicated problem solved. Yeah, well, when we started, I remember we, we raised a $3 million seed round from Caffeinated Cap. Ray Tonsang is the investor there. And I remember being like, okay, we have $3 million. And if we start in San Francisco, that means we can buy approximately maybe one to two homes. <laughs> and so maybe we should launch not in San Francisco and someplace where we can actually show some traction. And so we ended up launching in Cleveland, because I literally looked at a map and I was like, we're the cheapest homes in the US and came back with kind of Cleveland area. And I was like, okay, let's start there and just see if anybody wants our product. You know, I think that figuring out very early on the capital side was, was super important. We raised our first debt facility first year in. We raised, it was a bunch of seed investors who put money in, be able to give us about $4 million worth of what was debt capital at that time in addition to the $3 million of seed capital. So we'd have $7 million total to deploy. And then once we got through that, we raised a $20 million debt facility with uh, Crossover Bank, who are early partners to us, and then continued to scale up from there. And I remember thinking back in the day, you know, I did the math and I was like, well, if we're successful, we're going to have to be raising like billions of dollars a year. And at the time, I remember being like, well, those are kind of champagne problems, right? Which is like, I was like, well, if we're successful, I'll deal with that when the time comes. And then here we are four or five years later and those problems have come and it's kind of in some way really a source of pride that we've made it to this point where we have to think about how we can raise billions of dollars to be able to finance the purchase of thousands of homes. Um, and so I feel quite grateful that we even have the opportunity to be here uh, now. And so, yeah, when we did start off, raising capital is kind of the number one thing. And then I think number two was just really figuring out what the consumer wanted. You know, mortgages are, 
well known. You can go online and Google mortgage calculator and figure out how much you'd be paying for a mortgage. And when we started out with Divi, it had a lot of analogies to to a mortgage product, but it was still something completely new and educating our consumer, helping explain what it does was was super important for us. And I think that that level of education really just took some like hand-to-hand combat early on, which was me getting on the phone with every customer and helping explain what we do and why we do it and how the math all works. And then going out similarly to investors on the debt side and then explaining what we do and how we do it and making sure that I could get them on board to finance it. Yeah, champagne problem, millions <laughs> of dollars. Does your investor background help you in raising those kinds of sums of money? Um, in the beginning, for sure. I now have this amazing team. So we have our CFO, his name is Tom Egan, and he's been a tremendous partner for me. And he now raises all of our, our debt capital. We have teams of people who are just excellent at this. Look, I think it comes down to the proof is in the pudding, which is if you have strong performance, capital will be there. It's the same thing on the debt and the equity side, which is if we, you know, underwrote customers who ultimately didn't pay their rent or right underwrote homes where we completely overpaid for them, our debt providers would realize that and we would be struggling. And I think we're so successful because we've been really thoughtful about how we scaled and grow and grew to make sure that we were adding, you know, customers that we were thoughtful about whether or not they can make their payments and not overextending them and paying the right prices for homes. And I think now as a result of that, we're in like a fairly good position. And have garnered a decent amount of respect from from the the debt investing community. And how does it feel personally to have made it financially? Oh well, you never feel like you made it. <laughs> uh, that is a. Uh, I used to say like when we had started, I was like, okay, all I need to do is get to like a hundred million dollars of revenue and raise this much capital, and then I'll know that we've made it. And then you get there, and then you're like ah, oh, crap, now we need to get to the next milestone. And then you get there and you're like, ah, oh, we're still not there the next one. So it always feels like shoestring and gum that's holding everything together. Uh, and that's not the case, but it it always still feels like you're a small company and working through stuff because every time you make it to one milestone, there is the next milestone. And every time you create maybe one product that shows tremendous growth, now you have to think about five years from now, what's the next product that you're going to put out and how are you going to finance it? And what's that going to look like? I would say it never feels like you've reached the end or that you've made it, but instead that you are on a very long journey and maybe you you reached base camp, but you're still climbing <laughs> quite a bit to get to the top. So there's always a new mountain to climb. Completely. Or like you realize that what, there are false peaks that you think that there are, that you're going to be at a certain level and be at a peak. And then just to realize that you're just really at the very bottom still and have a lot to do. Um, and there are new challenges to overcome. I think that that's why it's so fun to build a company. And I think it causes you to evolve as a leader, which is, you know, you're one person who needs to change and adjust who you are to get to the first stage of the company and then to the next stage and then to the next stage. And one, it makes it interesting to just develop yourself. Also watch watch a company evolve. It's kind of like having a, a kid in some ways where, you know, when we were seed stage, I used to think of Divi as like a, a baby where if I left it, it would like completely fall apart, right? And not survive. And now we're kind of in the teenager phase where it would live if God forbid I went away or something like that, but there's still a lot of life for it and a lot of growth. How have you evolved yourself to keep up with that growth? 
oh, a lot of work, a lot of just personal work. So when I, I was originally the COO of Divi, not the CEO, I co-founded it with a guy named Brian. He was originally a CEO. And then about a year and a half in, I took over as CEO. And I had never run a company before. And I think when I first started, so much of building Divi was just brute force. It was running through walls and never quitting and making sure that nothing fell through the cracks because I was going to be there and I was going to outwork everyone. And then over time, you realize that, okay, you now have people in place who are going to help catch some of those things. So you don't have to be everywhere and taking care of everything. But now you need to lead them in such direction and more of a strategic vision. And I think that that's really hard. It's hard to go from the person who can execute well to the person who can set the strategic vision well to someone who right, can, can lead an org of thousands of people. And so I personally worked my butt off. I mean, I did executive coaching. I do therapy. I have mentors. I try to just learn um, and know that for Divi to be successful, I can't be the same person who I was five years ago. And I really have to push myself to learn how to grow and get better and surround myself with people who have done this before and who I can learn from. Yeah, it does seem like there's a lot of evidence that founder CEOs outperform, but it often means that they have to continually involve themselves. And one of the things I thought about when we were running our business was that I needed to fire myself a little bit every day. And you're talking about that role transforming. And if you're not keeping up with that by constantly delegating and thinking what you can get off the plate, it can be hard to make that process work smoothly. Yeah, and I think it's just being self-aware, right? Which is be self-aware of what you have as a skill set now and what you need to, to learn as a skill set in the future and then just build towards it. And it doesn't come overnight. It takes, like anything in life, meticulous like practice, right? You don't just wake up one morning, you're like, I'm gonna run a marathon, right? You run a couple miles and then a couple miles more and you, you slowly build up the muscles and the strength. And that's the same thing, which is like, you don't just wake up and you're like, ah, I can be the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. No, you, you start off small and you grow and you build and you learn. And then eventually garner the strengths and skill sets that you need and always be self-aware that like, you have a lot of learning to do. It's, it's interesting because yes, there's been a lot of evidence that, that founders make really great CEOs over the long run. But I think that it, it is interesting because, you know, executives don't always scale with companies. And so why is it that a founder pushes themselves to scale when in a traditional sense, if you're just working at a company that can be challenging to go from someone who can run, you know, generally companies grow faster than individuals, right? And so why is it the case that with founders, you have to keep pace and how do you do that? And I think that it's just learning and a lot of effort and a lot of just pushing yourself. You mentioned mentors and coaches. You've also talked publicly about finding mentors early in your career, any tips for asking for help or how to select those people or convince them to work with you? I think that you, you find people who you just naturally click with. You know, when I had started at, in finance, I, I worked in private equity for a while. There was a woman named Carrie Wheeler who was a partner at the time. And I just basically was like, I'm an idiot, help teach me and I will work my butt off for you. And she's now actually the CFO of Open Door, which is a small world, but really helped mentor and guide me. Now, Sarah Fryer, who's the CEO of Nextdoor, was a good mentor for me. And I think that it's just 
finding people who you can really open yourself up to and have a vulnerable conversation around, hey, I will work my butt off for you. Just like teach me, (laughs) make me better. And I think having, being a genuine person and really open and self-aware helps you form those relationships. Today, now, I think I've been really fortunate that people have been really caring to help develop me. Glenn Kelman over at Redfin, um, the CEO there has um, invested a ton in me and and really like help support me and pushes me. And and I feel really fortunate that there are people who are willing to give up their time to just make me better as an individual. And I think people look for that. They love being a mentor. It's fun for like both parties, but I think you have to be willing to put in the effort from your end to, to, you know, make time, heed their advice, work hard. Authenticity, humility, and asking someone directly to help you and saying you need the help. Exactly. I mean, I start off every call with them where I'm like, Glenn, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is how I'm thinking about it. Am I a complete idiot? (laughs) And to his credit, he's always very gentle uh, and very kind. But I think it's just admitting right where you don't know and you just need some advice or some perspective. Now, you mentioned your co-founder who was CEO at the beginning. How did you decide to work together in the first place? Yeah, so um, it was 2017, and I had spent a lot of time at, at the that point in time. I was investing in venture capital, and I had spent a lot of time in the world of fintech, and really felt like real estate was going to be the next wave. And got introduced to him through a mutual friend, and we had just spent a lot of time jamming out on the future of real estate. And he had been in an EIR at. Um, uh, HVF, which is Max Lepchin's startup studio. And he asked if I wanted to come co-found a company with him under in Max Lepchin's startup studio. And I said, yes. And uh, we brought on our third co-founder, Nick Clark, who became our CTO. And the three of us really connected. It's interesting because I think that Nick and I, we always joke that we make quick, big decisions, which is a lot of times, I think when you're making decisions like, should I start a company or like, <laughs> you know, should I do X, Y, and Z, there, there are no right or wrong answers, right? There's a gut instinct around, are these people who I want to build something with? And am I going to commit to something and put in the effort to make it right? And I think so much comes down to knowing that there will be no right or wrong answer, but just a decision to make a commitment and work at something. And what was it like being part of a startup studio? It was awesome. Max and his wife, Nellie, continue to be great mentors to to me and have been super supportive to us. It also gave us a lot of tools and resources, early office space, even just Max's time early on, which was really helpful. But ultimately, over time, right, no matter where or how or the environment in which you are building a company, you are the person who's building it like the founder, right? No one else is building it. And I don't care if that's, you know, within Y Combinator program is not going to be the person who's building your company for you. You are building it. And so I think that there's a lot of resources and people out there to help support you. And at the same time, it's on you to build the company that you want to ultimately create. And how have those co-founder relationships evolved over time? Yeah, so... I'd say, you know, working with co-founders, I think having three is really nice because it balances us out really well. We're all different and have different skill sets. 
Brian ended up uh, leaving the company a couple of years back because he wanted to be an investor and no longer an operator. And he's still on the board and has been a really good thought partner, even not being a Divi. And Nick, who's our CTO, is still here. And he uh, he's everything. I mean, I couldn't have built Divi without him. And, you know, we, we joke if, God forbid, Divi ever doesn't work out. We're building the next one together and the next one and the next one. And I feel really fortunate to have found essentially someone who I could see myself not just building Divi with, but continuing to work with for the rest of my life. That's amazing to build that kind of working relationship with someone. It's really powerful. Well, I think it just comes from a lot of respect. I mean, he is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. And I think he feels similarly about working with me, which is just to find people where you connect really well and push each other in your thinking and how you, you know, approach problems. He calls me on nonstop and all the stuff that I do that's completely dumb. And it's fun though. Like it makes it the best when like we're building something. He's like, Adina, you didn't think about this, this or this. I'm like, God, he's got me. Like I, I did it. <laughs> and then we make each other better. I mean, it all comes from the same intention and, and spirit, which is like help make Divi the best possible company it can be. Any advice for other founders and how to either select their co-founder or to build that strong of a relationship? Oh gosh, it's hard. That's like asking any advice on a good marriage or finding one, right? It's like, this is, these are such personal relationships. I think finding someone who you fully trust is really important. I think Nick and I have a tremendous amount of trust for each other and being completely honest, open, and transparent. There are no secrets, right? I think both Nick and I approach everything with just complete honesty with each other. And then being open to just growing yourself. I, I love feedback. I think Nick does as well. And we're confident enough in our own abilities that we can take feedback and not feel defensive about it in any way. And I think that that's allowed us to really learn and grow and show up as sort of our, our best selves. Do you have the ability to share feedback like that with other people? Or is this a, a special case? I'm a probably way too direct uh, <laughs> individual. So I tend to share feedback with everyone very transparently and directly. I think that the only difference is, is that with, with, with Nick, because we've been through so much, because we've built a company together, that there is an underlying trust that neither of us are ever going anywhere. That there is no like quitting, there is no us separating, that I could share anything with him and he can share anything with me and that there is no risk, right? That, that we are fully 110% committed to this. And I think that that is something that actually is quite rare because Ultimately, as much as you can be transparent and share feedback with executives, there's no relationship like a founder relationship where with Nick, this is our, our baby, right? We, we built this together and, and, you know, with other executives, I think I'm, I'm very transparent and honest, but ultimately people's life and priorities and things like that change. I don't think Nick, neither Nick or I are going anywhere. And we kind of joke, I'm like, well, the next company we start to build, I'm like, Nick, you get to be CEO next time. And he's like, nah, I don't really want to be CEO next time. And so we kind of just, I think, also have a good sense of humor about it. So why would you want him to be CEO? Oh my gosh, CEO is like the worst job of all time. It's like you, I mean, like, look, I, I love building Divi, but at the same time, 
it's hard. I joke, I'm CEO going on business analyst, which is like, if I could just sit there and find out a problem and, and just focus on doing a really interesting analysis, that that would be in my like happy place, that there's so much more that comes with running a company and being a CEO and a lot of expectations. And it's tough. It's fun. And it's, it's really challenging. The bigger the team gets and the more smart people you hire, the only things that cross your desk are the things that are really hard to figure out. Yeah, and you end up having to deal with a lot of, I think, things that I've learned to be better at, but weren't naturally easy for me, which is like people management, dealing with keeping people engaged and excited. And I'm very, I'm a worker bee. I love like solving a problem more so than I, I think I'm particularly after skilled at helping navigate complex interpersonal situations or things like that. And I think that doesn't make a difference what you're good or bad at. You've got to learn how to be good at everything as a CEO, right? That's your job. It's like figure it all out. And so I guess that's why we kind of joke. Nick loves building technology. He's like a technologist at heart. And he just is like, yep, you get to deal with all the like HR interpersonal stuff. And then I'll just deal with the technology and things. And so I always joke, like, next time you're going to have to deal with all this stuff. And so it's funny banter. But I think it just speaks to the level of trust we have for each other. And one thing I realized as our company grew in headcount is that with so many people, the chances were that someone was having the worst day of the year today. And there was pretty good odds someone was having the worst day of their career today. And yeah. so when it seemed like there was always someone with an emotional thing or some kind of crisis, I just realized it's a numbers thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think that it's also recognizing that people have a lot of stuff going on in their life outside of just work, right? <laughs> that people have lives and a lot of personal situations and just making sure you're there to support your employees through all of that. Wonderful. Any other advice you'd have for first-time founders? I think my biggest advice is Persistence. I think Ben Horowitz has a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is like I found to be very, very just thoughtful and similar to my experience, which is that this is going to be hard. You're going to feel like you're going under. He calls it a withio moment in his book, which is where after it's over. <laughs> and then you're going to go through 20 of those, he says, and I maybe think maybe it's more like 40 of those during building a company, persistence, ability to run through walls and really deeply understanding a problem. And so make sure you know the problem that you're solving super well, make sure that your customers really love your product. And then when those with moments come, like the current macro environment, know how to just put your head down, keep working hard and make it through to the other side. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.